This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Boundaryless Conversation podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. In these conversations, we make sense of what's next. Join me, my co-hosts and my guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. Hello everyone, it's Simone here. Together with Stina Hekila today, we are co-hosting an interview with Arthur Brock. Arthur Brock is the chief architect of Holochain. Holochain is an alternative to blockchain for running fully peer-to-peer distributed applications and is shaping the social dynamics of our emerging post-industrial economy. Arthur has created more than 100 designs for multi-currency systems and his software company has built and deployed dozens of those systems. Committed to bringing intelligence to social architectures, Arthur began to unlock the social DNA by which groups operate and uncover the critical role of currencies as carriers of that social DNA. In our conversation, we dig deeper into the notion of unenclosable carriers as a central concept of the Holochain perspective that describes communication patterns and coordination capacity where intermediaries are unable to enclose the information held by carriers. Unenclosable carriers open up new possibilities for coordination and organizing, enabling agent-centric models and governance through feedback loops. These communication systems have the potential to be more centered around the local context and local agents, contributing to radically new ways of organizing. I hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget to check out the links in the show notes. Here we go with the first episode. So as a first start of the conversation, I would give the floor to Arthur, you know, basically to explain us briefly why it's really important to understand uh, technology as a language and why it's very important to understand this idea of unenclosable carriers that they are uh, that is so central to the holochain uh, perspective thank you simone um yeah it's easy to talk about technology and get lost in sort of the fascination and complexity of of all of the kind of technology that we've built but i would like to kind of boil the conversation down back to some more basic concepts like language itself is a form of technology that we use to coordinate with each other. Writing is a form of technology. We're not talking about massive supercomputers. We're actually just talking about the basic dynamics of communication and coordination. And all of this comes down to some very basic patterns, um, which is essentially that we encode meaning or messages or signals onto carriers that carry that information to others, right? Right now I am speaking, I'm pushing air through my vocal cords. And if you were in the same area as me, there's nothing that somebody could do to stop my words from reaching somebody else's ears. But right now I'm, I'm, you know, pushing air through my vocal cords, vibrating, making vibrations in the air, and they're being captured by a microphone that is now going over you know, a, um, a website's software to record things and that kind of stuff. And there's many intermediaries who could control the, the, the message that's happening right now that could intercept it, that could shut it off. You know, you're going to end up with a stored copy of this uh, recording and who knows how you might edit it to, to change the meaning of what I said, for example. I'm not suggesting you will. It's just that it's actually possible. And I think this is 
a very simple dynamic that we don't have we don't have words for um, in a shared space. And for for me, it's a very core concept of this idea of the unenclosability of a carrier or the enclosability of the carrier itself, the means by which we communicate or coordinate. And, you know, we'll probably talk about this more, but part of what we're working on right now with Holochain is really the means to have unenclosable carriers at all scales. Um, Because right now we're boxed in by certain power dynamics of enclosed carriers. And it's even hard to see those because they're kind of overt and, or sorry, covert and hidden power dynamics. Can you, can you, let's say, explain better uh, these dynamics that it's, it's, they are hard to get, you know, this dynamic of enclosability so that, that all our systems are subject to? Sure. So on the, on the most basic level, like I was giving the example of, um, you know, for, for hundreds of thousands of years, <laughs> people uh, really only had the carrier of sound waves in, in terms of language and coordination communication. Also, light waves, you could signal each other, give hand signals, um, that sort of thing. But fundamentally, the power dynamics of those were that like I was saying, you couldn't stop a message from reaching somebody else's ears. If you were gathered together at a at a you know council fire, the only way to um, stop somebody from being heard is to use some very overt ways of you know shutting them up or shouting over them or things like that. And it becomes that 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 use of power becomes very visible to everyone else. Or maybe you could say that abuse of power. Um, but when we, as soon as we take that, um, communication and we change the carrier, for example, we write it down. Now that becomes an enclosure that we, we, if we want to, you know, send orders to our generals in the field, because we're coordinating some big empire, well, that message can be intercepted. It can be changed because it can be enclosed. Right. And, um, where it just changes the, the, the dynamics of things a lot. If I carve it into the cave wall, now somebody can stand guard at the entrance of the cave and, and decide who can see it. And it's really important stuff in terms of the evolution of our coordinative, coordinative capacity as humans, right? We, a lot of our, our early sort of primal tribal imprinting is on the dynamics of this completely democratic, if you will, unenclosable carrier of sound waves. But then there's a limitation to to our ability to scale, right? If you're not there when I said it, then you didn't hear it, right? So we have a time bound issue and there's only so loud that I can speak to reach so many people, right? So we have a sort of a space bound issue as well. And Inventions of things like writing actually let us cross those those boundaries of time and space, and they let us operate on different scales. You couldn't have empires and and governments and you know that type of thing operating on only oral communication. Um, and so, while we've solved those problems of scale, we've introduced other dynamics um, 
even with just, you know, originally just the evolution of writing itself and who had access to, to literacy and the sort of power dynamics there and who had access to knowledge and, and books and that kind of thing. Well, those things have carried forward in other ways. Who has access to, you know, the medium to, by which they can broadcast their message. And part of what we've seen with the internet, for example, is a change in some of those power dynamics, because again, the internet by part of its design was supposed to be a way to, um, have a, res- a network resilient to attack and shut down, right? So the idea was it was very hard to stop message messages from flowing because there's no central point that they have to go through. And so the internet has in, in many ways given us a glimpse of what it is in modern times to have a, an unenclosable carrier, except it's only partially that way at the moment, right? Because there are still points of enclosure of domain names and and root servers for DNS resolution and IP addresses and, you know, and a a semi-monopoly of telecom companies that you have to go through to, to get access to the internet and things like that. There's still many points of enclosure, even when we try to do things that are very um, peered and democratic. Um, And so there's, there's still a gap for us to fill to really get to the, to the uh, kinds of means that somebody cannot shut down without a very overt use of power that becomes very evident. Just uh, offering a reflection here so that we can explore more of this space. You know? so, um, so this this conversation about, you know, it's a, it's a conversation at the end about trust, you know, uh, and essentially trust uh, uh, somehow towards the managers of the of the of the carriers let's say so for example if we talk about the internet uh there is a certain uh, amount of trust that we um as users and and companies uh and trust let's say to authorities that uh, govern uh, the communication system so for example i don't know uh the name domain name uh, resolvers or 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 you know other types of authorities, even you know the carriers themselves, and uh, also we, we know that there are dynamics uh, in the market for which essentially at some point you de- derogate a function like uh, the function of uh, um, creating and maintaining the infrastructure for conversation to these third parties uh, uh, in exchange somehow uh, of uh, for, for for their capability to run the, the the communication space in a way that is cheap and is accessible and ubiquitous, uh, so somehow we trust our carriers uh, uh, or internet service providers enough uh, for uh, the service that they provide us to a certain uh, uh, cost, let's say. So and 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 we also know that the the blockchain, for example, the traditional blockchain. Uh, systems have been uh, trying to address this uh, uh, idea of uh, untrusted spaces. Uh, so what is the, t- the difference in, in how uh, Holochain and the Holochain perspective addresses this, uh, this topic? Yeah, um, I think it's a really crucial issue that you point to around trust because I'm not suggesting that... Um, just because a carrier is enclosable, that the people who control the carrier are evil. <laughs> um, however, there is a tendency to 
when you have systems that concentrate power to have those power concentrations eventually become corrupted, even if they didn't start out that way. Um, and so, yeah, the, the blockchain is an example of a an attempt to try to address this in a, an architectural approach where you are trying to achieve what they call trustlessness. But really, I think that's a kind of confusing word. I think the point is that you don't have to have a central party intermediary, right? You're still trusting in various things. You're trusting in math and cryptography and, you know, computer communications and, and you know, the algorithms and different things like that. It's not actually that there's trustlessness. What there is is the ability to um, kind of push that power out to the edges and not have a central party that you're forced to trust, even if you don't have a personal trust in them. And um, so that's, I think, one of the, the very kind of in, part of the, the very engaging mythos around blockchain is an opportunity to take the corporations that are, you know, basically selling us to advertisers and, you know, performing various forms of uh, surveillance, you know, making their money off of various forms of surveillance of us and being able to take them out of the middle, being able to take governments out of the middle of our money systems and other types of things. You know, I think that's that's part of the mythos that's so engaging around blockchain. Um, and the, the question is, and, and I think this question is really vital to, to the work that you do around platform design is, is about scale. And um, for me, blockchain has repeated some of the uh, patterns of centralizing car- carriers without really thinking about it, without, of, of enclosing carriers without really thinking about it. And I would say one of those things actually has to do with the concept of, of consensus, global consensus, and um, and the need to do distributed computing or decentralized computing around global consensus, I would assert is actually a form of enclosure. And so all the, all the patterns of doing blockchain computing that require global consensus um, have extreme limitations to scale, right? Like the part of the, the beauty of um, some of the patterns that we can learn from in nature and physics, biology, that, that kind of thing is that there is no global consensus. There is high degree of autonomy and diversity happening, but they actually scale. You have trillions of cells in your body working together to do the dance that you do, right? To, to move your hands, to move your mouth, to, to take you to work, to, you know, like, and it isn't a power hierarchy. There's not like a boss cell that's in charge of all of the others. It's actually a complex coordination through a whole bunch of different carriers uh, of coordination and communication between the cells. And um, for me, I think there's so much that we can learn from nature and from even the cells in our body. Like we tend to have a, a, a bit of a, um, I think a, an arrogant view of our status in, in the place of evolution. And we sort of view ourselves as so intelligent. And yet there are things that the cells in our body accomplish far better than, than we do. Right. Like, you know, we build a city and get stuck in traffic jams just trying to get to work 
to you know to and from work every day and whatever like that we we tend to build architectures not optimized for um, coordination uh, at scale collaboratively and yet the cells in our body are optimized for that so there's a lot we can learn about those kinds of patterns especially when we're trying to do something like the goals of blockchain right to be able to operate without central authority on other scales and that's why we've built holochain as an alternative to this that actually uses the patterns that we find in nature um, to essentially provide the ability to have an unenclosable carrier at all of these scales so that we can build applications we can share data we can coordinate we can engage governance you know any of these different types of things it's not just about currency or, or cryptocurrencies that's very interesting. I think uh, that there's one one thing that comes to my mind that is somehow, you know, when when you think about all the chain and this difference between, you know, this going beyond this idea of uh, the need to achieve global consensus, somehow you are uh, you're saying, okay, uh, when we get over this idea that we need to achieve this global consensus, uh, what kind of ideas uh, came up? Okay, what, what, what new different organizations we design based on uh, this idea that we don't want to achieve a global consensus? So basically, inherently starting to think about something that is more local uh, and uh, more centered around the agent as uh, Olochain uh, apparently is. Uh, so I have two questions, let's say, hanging uh, on uh, at, the, at this moment, and I would like to start from one. Uh, and on basically these two questions, one is more into, you know, what kind of organizations we can see, we can imagine, we can, we can think about when we start from these different uh, uh, um, principles and, and, and point, starting points. And on the other hand, uh, how do you achieve this, uh, uh, ch- this change, you know, this transformation, starting from addressing the technological problem? So why starting from creating a new technology instead of starting to create, for example, new capabilities or a new vision or a new narrative or new whatever. Um, yeah, I think there's there's a really beautiful question behind what, what you're saying there. There's beautiful ideas behind the question about why are we spending our time creating a new technology? Um, th- there's a bunch of levels to this answer, which I want to say I'm not some kind of um, techno-utopian that thinks that somehow technology will magically solve our problems. And yet, again, in this larger use of the word technology, where even language is a technology, obviously it's very fundamental to our coordination. And I think that there's a a tendency to look at alternatives to this, like um, as if we can just raise people's consciousness and, you know, that will shift our problems, that that will solve our problems, or, you know, we can just educate people, or we could just share a vision, for example, that would would change the game. Well, the, the difficulty for me is that when I look at our planetary situation, um, I think we are bumping into planetary boundaries. We are, we are having breakdowns at a planetary scale. And what I mean by that is, um, think about it this way. What's the difference between getting an answer wrong on a math test 
or having a heart attack, <laughs> right? There's a, a breakdown of a physical living system that you want to intervene with in the case of a heart attack. In the case of getting an answer wrong on the math test, there's a conceptual issue that you're trying to address and you want to correct a way of thinking. And I think the problem that we're having right now is not just problems in our ways of thinking. There are certainly some problems in our ways of thinking, um, but what we have is actual embodied physical systemic problems. You know, whether we're looking at at you know ocean acidification and radiation levels and topsoil depletion and climate change and you know um, loss of rainforests and CO2 levels and like if we can go down a large list of things, but we're actually having breakdowns in uh, living systems. And in order to address the, those breakdowns, we actually have to be able to change our patterns of behavior at collective scale. And while sharing visions and ideas um, can be inspiring, they don't tend to change our collective patterns, right? Or, or for example, the fundament, if the fundament of our economy at the moment relies on converting natural resources to numbers in a bank account, you know, are we really going to be able to shift patterns by inspiring people when meanwhile to pay the rent, they still have to, you know, whatever, mine the coal or chop down the trees or, you know, <laughs> when, when, when fundamentally we have an economy that's built on, on top of these physical systems, um, I think that the what is required, the only alternative, is to have new ways of coordinating on scale. And with those new ways of coordinating will be new visions. Some of them will require new visions to engage with, new stories, new myths. But they also have to be able to be embodied in practical, usable tools that people can use to alter their behavior. And then we will see new ways of coordinating. And we, we already are, right? Like, f even though I contrast blockchain and holochain, right, we're seeing uh, all kinds of activity in the blockchain space that that shows some, some new patterns of coordinating. Now, a lot of that stuff is still stuck in kind of the speculative gambling of, of the, you know, financial economy, so the, the, the derivatives on top of the real economy, if you will. Um, but there's the possibility of tying it in to real economies, real productive economy type stuff, where, um, which is part of what we're trying to do with the currencies we're building on top of Holochain. Holochain doesn't have a currency built in, but like we're building one that's backed by hosting power. We have some partnerships emerging for currencies backed by energy, food, transportation, don't have one lined up for housing yet, but, but I'd like to. So where, where you can have currencies backed by real human needs, which is very different than the kind of speculative gambling currencies that we're seeing you know, in, initially emerge on blockchain. And that gives us, again, different possibilities of coordinating on scale and different foundation to build an economy on. Um, so... I hope that, that that answers the question is is that I guess I have this picture of um, of a of a ladder where one side of the ladder, the rail one rail of the ladder is 
consciousness and you know the story, the vision, the mythos, the the ways that you think, and the other is the embodied practical physical tools. And you have to be able to kind of build up both sides of the ladder at once, or you know, on par with each other, and then you can build have rungs that go across in the form as in the form of practical projects that embody both a changed consciousness as well as a new set of capacities embodied in the tools. What tends to happen if you don't bring up both sides of the ladder at the same time is you change people's consciousness, but then if what they do on a day-to-day basis is still all the old things, they just fall back into the previous patterns of thinking. Or if you give people new tools that can give you new capacities and you don't change their consciousness, then they just use the new tools to do the old things and they don't change how they're doing things. So you actually need both at the same time. And I feel like this whole concept of unenclosable carriers is a little bit subtle and strange. And there's not people that have their eyes on the same dynamics that we do. So we're trying to provide some alternatives that we think allow for these different patterns and don't accidentally carry forward a legacy of some of the broken patterns of control that we're trying to create alternatives to. No, I, I think one very interesting point that uh, that comes to my mind when, when we're having this conversation is this idea of uh, technological affordability. You know? So one, one new technology has a certain affordability. It lends itself to be used in a certain way. And so I got your point when you, when you say, you know, we don't just need to do the new narratives and new stories, but we also need to create maybe tools that uh, somehow lend uh, themselves to be used uh, to design different systems. So I get, uh, I totally get this idea, and I think it's very interesting, you know, because we know that technology and systems and organizations are really, um, I would say that uh, they are uh, connected in this way that, uh, you know, Marsha McLuhan explained very well that, you know, a new technology makes a new organization possible and a new organization makes a new technology possible. So, uh, you know, somehow I get this point. One thing that I would like to explore with you is uh, I, I get this idea that Holochain uh, lends itself to um Uh, be used uh, to design systems that are inherently more local and more centered around the agents and the players that design and play with the system. So uh, for me, this resonates very much with this idea that we have very clear now that uh, we need to overcome this universalizing idea of technology that uh, uh, makes it possible to think about how we live just in this very monocultural way. So can you explain and explore a little bit why you believed that uh, a new local and more contextual way to create organizations can should have been empowered and that's and and that's why you you are building all the chain yes um so so i was talking before about global consensus and part of the need for global consensus has to do with thinking in terms of global state instead of local state and um you'll hear us talk sometimes about the difference between holochain and and others other decentralized computational systems such as blockchain um, is the difference between agent-centric and data-centric. And um, so Holochain is, is what we call agent-centric. It really is focused on your, you can only change your state, your local state, and you're the only one who can change your local state. 
And then what we have is a way for that state information to propagate throughout the system based on a shared set of rules. So every every Holochain application has a set of rules for, we call it the DNA actually, um, a set of rules that all of the uh, cells in that organism, if you will, <laughs> the nodes on that network run that set of rules. And we know that they have that set of rules because we literally hash the code, right? So you, we know, we confer, you can confirm that you have an identical set of rules as anybody else. And this is very similar to what the body does with DNA, right? The body has all kinds of mechanisms for doing error correction and making sure that the DNA is copied accurately um, so that every cell starts off with the same instruction set, with the same set of rules. And now different cells may express some of those uh, instructions differently. They may become a, a bone cell versus a brain cell or a liver cell, or um, <clears throat> but they, they all have that rule set. And you could say that they mutually enforce that rule set. They have an immune system to um, be able to detect rule breakers and get rid of rule breakers, if you will. Well, that's very much the design of, of Holochain is it's mutually enforced rules on this DNA. And each cell, each agent, each node can only change its local state. And then we publish those changes to a distributed hash table uh, or DHT, which is the same kind of technology that um, uh, BitTorrent uses, like for file sharing and that kind of stuff. So it's been around for quite a while, but it's a way of having a, a shared database, if you will, where everybody doesn't have to hold all of the data, but you can have a way of finding the data across all of the nodes. So you don't have to have a global ledger, a global state that everybody has to have a copy of and keep in sync, because that requires massive computation and frankly doesn't scale as you add more nodes it becomes ex you get exponentially increasing overhead where with holochain as you add more nodes once you've passed your redundancy your target redundancy threshold if that's 20 copies of the data or 50 copies of the data once you've passed 20 nodes or 50 nodes then the workload at that point doesn't increase per node they're just carrying their portion of, of their little shard, their piece, uh, and dividing up the work. And then you do mutual validation according to the DNA rules. I change my state locally, and then I publish that information, but all the other nodes have the same DNA. They can check whether my state change was valid. And you only propagate valid state changes. And you can flag invalid ones, and anybody can trust just their own copy of the DNA to confirm whether that action was valid or invalid. And then people can block malicious agents that are doing invalid things because you know that their DNA is corrupted. Um, so it just, it, it's in some ways, what I'm saying is very simple. I mean, I'm using biological language and, and, and it doesn't have to be as complex as we, we have made some of the really sophisticated systems around blockchain, like you know, Ethereum's Patricia trees and all the things that they're doing to try to try to make global state scale. Um, there's a lot of sophistication in there, um, but it may be kind of barking up the wrong tree. It may be focused on that the data has independent existence, independent truth. 
that makes it data centric, right? And um, we're suggesting that actually data doesn't have independent truth. It doesn't have first order existence. Data is always an assertion by an agent. It always came from somewhere. Somebody said this was true. And in Holochain, we just keep the data tied to that model, right? We actually um, know who said what and was that a valid thing to say according to the rules? Um, and then that allows us to have each application function as its own peer-to-peer network where everybody infor- is you know, mutually enforcing the rules Im- that are embedded in that DNA, in the application's DNA. Um, so yes, local state comes first, local agency comes first, the ability to always change yourself. But then there's also this shared set of agreements, right? The protocols, the DNA about what is it we're doing together that allow us to accept people's local state changes or not as a part of the the game we're coordinating together. Mm-hmm. I see a lot of these uh, overlap uh, with, um, you know, this mimicking nature somehow, no? So, so I, I, when I, you were talking, I, I had these, uh, uh, um, uh, type of thinking in mind where, where, where I, I was comparing a blockchain into a, a monoculture and a holochain more into this idea of an ecology where uh, somehow you mentioned that data is as I understand it's only valid in a context so you, you cannot have absolute data absolute meaning in data uh, uh, it always needs to be filtered through this local context okay so so that, that's very exciting, I believe, because uh, somehow I think uh, when you were also describing the v- vision besi- behind the whole, um, Holochain, I always I also got this uh, uh, feeling of a, an idea that embeds uh, the idea of limits. So you don't want to create these uh, uh, ultra-scalable, exponentially scalable systems. You ju- just want to design something that embeds an idea of limits, of localness, of... Uh, you know, uh, a, a certain meaning that cannot scale everywhere. No? So it's really resonating with this idea of uh, overcoming, uh, globalizing and overcoming universalizing um, uh, technologies or approaches that I think we started to recognize as one of the crises of, um, crisis of modernity. So I'm really, really intrigued intellectually uh, what I would like to explore with you, maybe as, a, as we approach the, 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 the last part of our conversation, uh, really, uh, what kind of organizing uh, uh, either you are seeing uh, uh, being explored or you, you believe it will be explored for which Holochain uh, is the perfect fit? You know, what, what kind of uh, uh, new types of organizations, uh, what are going to be about? Uh, how are they going to be managed and, and governed? Uh, and in what ways these new types of organizations and new ways of organizing uh, uh, connect with um, and, and, and differ from what we have uh, now? And also, for example, these large-scale global platforms or traditional incumbent institutions, uh, you know, what is going to be the new space uh, of uh, organizing that uh, that Holochain uh, is going to enable? Um, I think the what we're going to see is there's sort of low-hanging fruit because it's familiar to us. So, for example, we have 
web 2.0 kinds of concepts. We have social networks and, um, uh, you know, basically the kinds of places that content is contributed by users. The value comes from the users. I think we're going to see very quickly, those are the easiest things to switch over to more of like a web 3.0 kind of format where you can just take the centralized entity right out of the middle. So, for example, you have um, things like, I don't know, like Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and eBay and even Wikipedia, right? Like all of these things are coming from, the, the value comes from individuals. And yet we're basically all giving our data over to some centralized corporation that tends to make its money off of selling our information to advertisers and, and targeting us in ways that we may not want to be targeted, potentially even compromising our data to, who knows, intelligence agencies or, or actually who knows where. There's, if, you, if you actually look into how many groups our data gets shared with, it can be a little scary. Um, <clears throat> so those, I think, are some of the earliest things that we see moving over to Holochain um, as purely distributed apps. Where we can operate in a peer-to-peer manner without the, without the, um, you know, surveillers in the middle, if you will. Um, but I think there's a whole layer of things that come behind that that we 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 barely can even see coming. Like like you're talking about in terms of patterns of organizing and governance and um, what I'm what I'm really hoping for, like what I what I envision or want from Holochain, is for it to be able to function as kind of a carrier for new social DNA. Like when, when DNA showed up on the planet, that was a big change for the planet. The ability to, you know, encode cellular instructions, if you will, into patterns of, of amino acids, you know, uh, was kind of a big deal. And, I, and there was a, a Cambrian explosion of life forms, a big diversity of, of experiments emerged. And some of those experiments failed. But a lot of the biodiversity that we have today still stems from that sort of explosion of creativity. And I'm hoping for a similar kind of explosion of creativity of social DNA, of ways of, <coughs> sorry, of ways of organizing with each other on all scales. And I think that the, some of those experiments will be bad experiments will fail, not not turn out to be working patterns, but that there can be an explosion of new patterns that we haven't been able to see before because we've only been able to operate in kind of enclosed carriers and we've had to have centralized trust. And so it's hard for me to even imagine all of the possibilities, but I'm excited about them. Good. So, so definitely I see this idea that... Um somehow you know you you are into this uh journey of creating um new tools so that these kind of non linear and uh, very you know different and very um i would say uh, um you know non monolithic organizations are going to be uh appearing and and being tried out by by people no so somehow i feel like there is this idea that if we create these tools uh 
we will see um, a possibility for new experiments to to flourish. So so it's really an experimental approach that we are that uh, I see uh, you guys are, are taking to uh, enable new forms of organizing. Um, um, it, you know, as a final reflection to this conversation, I would love um, if you uh, can add maybe some reflections on, uh, you know, this idea that uh, sometimes we are naive about governance and uh, uh, we tend to look into governance as a, as a power structure. Mm? Uh, and uh, instead, in some previous conversation, you said, you know, I see governance more as a as a feedback loop uh, for systems to improve. So uh, maybe we can end the conversation with a note on this um, reflection and how this uh, uh, is uh, somehow embodied by by Holochain. Sure. Um, one, of, one of my most popular blog posts was called um, The Future of Governance is Not Governments. Um and uh, it, it, it starts to sort of take apart some of how we think of governance and, and, and really looking at it more like what is the governance involved in, in living systems, right? Like there's kind of two main drivers here. One is the being able to move toward things we want, steer well toward things that we want, and to steer away from from dangers or to, to be able to kind of hold coherence of um, patterns that we've found that work. So one is inherently a little bit progressive, moving toward progress, toward something new. And the other is a little, little bit inherently conservative, like conserving what we know works, making, you know, and um, we tend to like fracture our politics around those two things as if they're opposed instead of that they're always present. We actually need both. We need to keep moving forward the things that are working, but we also need to move forward toward the things that that we want and be able to respond to change, and especially a rapidly changing world. Um, you know, <laughs> you're in Italy right now, so you, you're responding very quickly right now to uh, you know COVID nineteen, the spread of coronavirus. Uh, this is going to test our limits. I think to respond to change quickly, right? I think we're already seeing we're not w perfectly well organized for that, and uh, we'll we'll see how we do. Uh, but this is just starting to play out now, right? Um, but we we tend to think of decision making as this highly sort of rational, linear process, and who are the decision makers, and you know how do you go about making decisions properly? But I think a lot of the time, decision making is much sloppier than that. I mean, we think about it like, okay, you get out of bed and you, you know, stumble to the shower and brush your teeth and put on some clothes and, you know, and then you get in your car and you're like, okay, now which route am I going to take to work? And you notice in that moment that you're making a decision and yet you just made millions of little decisions before that moment, right? Like you were being driven maybe by a lot by habit by pattern, you you weren't you don't weren't consciously thinking about every footstep, but you were doing this really complex dance of balancing while throwing yourself forward and staying upright. And you know, like to a baby, each footstep is more of a decision. How far should I be stepping? What you know, like they're they're learning all of that. And I think in in some ways, 
good decision making should kind of be like that, where it gets pushed, the, the patterns that work get pushed almost to a subconscious level. And we're only doing kind of conscious governance on the edge where we're having to navigate things that are unfamiliar, that either moving and responding to change or moving toward goals strategically. And even then, a lot of the times we don't even know what the boundaries of a decision are and what the interconnectedness of, of, of our choices are. You know, the idea is we can like write a piece of legislation and vote on it or, you know, write a policy and have everybody agree to it. But all, everything is far more interconnected to that. And um, it, I guess what I, what I would wish for is for us to think about decision-making less as like an overt wielding of power and more like a, an organic building of patterns and habits that actually allow us to steer. I think we would end up with better decision-making infrastructure if we stopped turning it into a power game and political conflict. And we understand, if we, if we were to understand that this need to conserve and to progress like are always present and uh, instead of like acting like one is right and the other is wrong um, and then polarizing our politics around it, uh, I think we would be moving toward very different patterns on, on large scale. And, and again, this is the kind of stuff that I'm hoping that things like Holochain can enable, where governance becomes a little bit more maybe like reading your Facebook feed, <laughs> like social feed or some, some sort, where you are responding to things that you're interested in, you're liking things, you're commenting, you're not, and and your expertise and interest is being tapped into for the collective whole, for the wisdom of the collective whole. Um, but it isn't about the overt wielding of power. It's about the feedback loops for wiser steering. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you? And then I will end this uh, to Stina, which I think also has a question. But I have a, a, a last a small point on this conversation that we just had. Uh, so, how do you see? Um, you know, you, you mentioned you know we need to both keep the things that are working and somehow experiment in new things. And how do you see this uh, um, transformation and this evolution between uh, the current power uh, structure based decision making into this more fluid and uh, um, organic decision making when we talk, when we think about existing incumbents, both uh, I would say public institutions or even private ones. Uh, so how do you see that uh, uh, evolution playing out when you think about existing institutions? So if I can say, how can you, how would you see, for example, a, a local government or a corporation to Uh, embed Holochain inside its own ways of working and ways of relating with the market and the world? Yeah, it's a, a great question because I think change is coming faster than we realize, that we're, we're in a process right now of, of exponential acceleration. And there's a lot of, again, kind of political, political polarization around change and how do we get the incumbents out of power and that kind of thing. And I think 
in many ways, what we're dealing with is, is a more fundamental existential thing, which has to do with what things can adapt to the accelerating rate of change and what things can't. Um, so, for example, um, I think we are watching the unraveling right now of um, industrial age business and finance and governance, actually governments, if you will, um, that those worked for the rate of change of an industrial age, but they don't work, those structures and patterns don't work for the rate of change at an information age. And so to me, very little energy needs to be invested in fighting against those systems. What our energy needs to be invested in is how do we organize in more rapidly responsive, evolving ways? Because if we cannot coordinate with each other at the speed of which we need to be responding to changing events, and we we have, like I was saying earlier, planetary scale changing events we need to be responding to, um, then, you know, we... we eliminate ourselves in this process, right? There's, there's big changes that, that can happen environmentally. And, and um, so we have to be able to respond. And I think what we're going to see is that if you think just in, in use the technology analogy for a moment as language is a technology, right? Governance is also a technology, right? Our judicial system is a technology for resolving problems and conflicts, Right. But if you think about that as what speed can legislators write new laws and what speed can these laws be propagated and then patterns of chain of behavior change from these laws and what speed can the courts resolve the conflicts around these laws, we're looking at a very slow CPU, a very slow processor, right? Not very much bandwidth can go through there not compared to the rate of change that's happening. Like you're just starting to see, you know, countries, um, mainstream countries, uh, have starting to have laws to respond to blockchain, right? It's now been in existence for approaching, you know, uh, what we've got 11, 12 years, something like that. Um, and we're just now starting to have, governments realize that they may have to do something about this. But meanwhile, by the time they can enact laws about blockchain, there's probably going to be the next generation of technology beyond blockchain. And they'll make a bunch of of laws that are targeting the wrong thing and the wrong constraints and the wrong problems, because the community would have solved these problems faster than a government could respond to them. Right. And so I, when I look at how do we deal with the incumbent powers, I think, although they certainly control a lot of um, information and assets, I think what we're going to see is that when we have the ability to coordinate unenclosably on, on all scales, um, they're kind of just going to get left behind. We're going to move faster than they can. And... Um, that creates new patterns of emergence of new kinds of assets and wealth and resources. And um, 
I think that starts to tip the, the power scale. So I think very little energy needs to be invested in, in kind of fighting against the incumbents and far more energy just needs to be focused on creating coherence, social coherence, which is challenging. It's hard to do. Um, but when, as we do that, then we replace the patterns that mm-hmm. are broken. Definitely. Sina, do you have a question, right, that you wanted to, to add? Yeah, a lot of uh, very interesting responses. And I think you already forecame those answers to uh, the reflection and the question that I had. But I was very interested in, in this last bit when, when we talk about this sort of going from this idea of a global consensus to more uh, diverse sort of subjectivities and the local state and the agent-centric um, inevitably one wonders who are the agents uh, behind this uh, and what is needed for uh, for people and local subjectivities to be able to sort of participate in this. Uh, I still have a feeling that there is um, some kind of language barrier and maybe similar to when we moved from sort of more an industrial economy to a knowledge economy um now things are happening very fast so there's some kind of literacy that uh will also be nuanced depending on on the local physical local context so i would be very curious to hear about that participation and and by whom and how <laughs> in a way yeah there there's certainly um a kind of literacy in the early stages of this where there there is a kind of barrier to participation and it is a little bit of a um you know a techno elite barrier if you will in that you know right now to build holochain apps you have to be a developer a, a coder you know to build smart contracts to build you know applications on on blockchain you know you you have to be a, a coder um and you know, we're working on building some some RAD tools, rapid application development tools, to make the process simpler, involve less coding, um, but you still have to be able to kind of think that way of what rules are you encoding in the system, you know. Um, but I think we'll, we'll see this evolve over time where that that hurdle gets lowered and there's an opportunity for more people to participate in the creation and invention process. And I think even within things that get created and invented, there's going to be governance within these, these applications, if you will, that can engage people in what are the changes that you need to see happening to the rules that we're operating by. And then you know, forms of governance and feedback from the community itself get incorporated into the next iteration, the next generation of, of the application DNA. Um, and part of the beauty of it being an unenclosable carrier is if the community wants to go one way and the original developers want to go another way, well, as an agent-centric system, agents are still in control of their data and their um, identity and they can choose which version of software they adapt, they adopt, and they can fork 
and you can have part of the community go one way and part of the community go another way. And I think that that is also a part of setting up an environment for healthy evolution. Um, but yeah, who are the agents? Part of what we're trying to do with Holochain is have you know the technology be so lightweight that you can be running it on your cell phone. You don't have to have some special mining gear, you know, for you know having shelves of servers and burning lots of electricity and that kind of stuff. It's the kind of thing where you could be running dozens of different peer-to-peer apps on your cell phone. Um, and so that barrier, obviously, I mean, the, the, <laughs> strangely enough, um, cell phone usage, you know, smartphone usage has has really kind of breached that digital divide issue and gotten far more people connected. So if we can have full peers, full agents on cell phones, then I think we have the ability to reach, you know, anywhere that really the internet is reaching. Um, but it's that initial kind of creativity that's shaping the space where you have to be a little bit of a, a technologist, a coder, and be able to build some of those things. But but I think of it like um, like a DVD player. Almost anybody can use a DVD player. Very few people can build one, right? <laughs> but what it takes to know how to build one is a little bit different. And so well, I'm hoping that we can lower the threshold of what it takes to build um, peer-to-peer apps, but uh, everybody should be able to use them. That sounds like a very good uh, uh, note uh, to end the conversation on, uh, really on this note of uh, trying to develop tools to democratize access to design and development of these, uh, somehow these technologies, uh, seeing them as overlapped with uh, new ways of organizing. So I would like to really thank you for this conversation, Arthur. I think, uh, I hope we we also gave a good uh, overall coverage on on the very ideas uh, and the very concepts that are uh, behind uh, your uh, quest to build uh, new technology for a new ways of uh, uh, the new ways of organizing uh, it was super interesting conversation for me and i would like to thank you again for for this uh, for this time thank you simona yes. thank you for listening to boundaryless conversation podcast we truly hope you enjoyed the show If you did, please share this episode on social media and subscribe to our podcast by looking up for Boundaryless Conversation Podcast on all major podcasting platforms. Stay tuned on www.platformdesigntoolkit.com for more general research updates, where you can also find opportunities for learning and free tools for you and your team to design platform strategies in these turbulent times. This podcast has been brought to you by our research sponsor, Intesa San Paolo, We want to also thank Walter Mobilio at Leo Sound for the ad hoc music.